This is Connor Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros and member of the Malax Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I share are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Halili, owner of the other media group and producer of Counter Stories. And our fourth member, Anthony Galloway, is out of town and can't join us today. But we have a very special guest. Um, as everyone is aware, in, in the past couple weeks, we've lost a couple of, of uh, honored, respected elders from our various communities of color and American Indian community. We, so we lost Bill Cotman, Mel Reeves, and Clyde Bellacourt. And in honor of that, um, we invited our special guest with us. And at this point in time, I'd like uh, Lisa Ballinger to introduce herself and uh, to our to our audience. And uh, Lisa. Ha, bonjour, everybody. Bijouens, minawa, wagmuha, wakawi, indigo, wabajeshian, no dame. Kasaga squad, Jimmy Cog, and Donjma, minawaga, kabi kang, and dainda, nungum. Um, bonjour, everybody. My Anishinaabe name is Young Links Woman and Sacred Gourd Woman. And I am Anishinaabe Ojibwe and Dakota from the Leech Lake Nation. I am Martin Clan. And I am so happy to be here with you today, although sad for the circumstances. Miigwech, 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 Lisa. So, you know, Lisa, you are also the current executive director of the American Indian Movement. And in that position, you've had the honor to work very closely with um, with someone that we lost in our uh, community, in the American Indian community. Um, and so I was hoping that you would be able to share. As the executive director of the American Indian Movement, um, could you please explain what the American Indian movement currently is? There may be listeners um, in our audience that are not familiar with the uh, history of uh, AIM. Um, bonjour, yes. The American Indian movement was founded, formed in uh, 1968. However, the concept was, was founded or established a few years before that within the walls of the Stillwater State Penitentiary here when uh, my Uncle Clyde met Uncle Eddie Benton Bonet in, within the correctional system. And they're meeting and they're talking and sharing of stories. And, you know, Uncle Clyde being incarcerated for the majority of his young life um, was curious to how... Eddie had still had some sense of happy spirit as he was walking through the walls of the correctional system, the building. You know, and it all boils down to, I believe the answer something went something about, you can't, you know, lock up my spirit. Clyde took that conversation and took that friendship, and as they were released and back into community, they decided to continue with that foundation of spirit and energy to work towards, uh, 
you know, healing and working and freeing our people and our communities. Some of the first actions of the American Indian Movement back in the late 1960s and 1968, it was an issue of police brutality. And it's kind of interesting that 52 years later, you know, we are still dealing with that very same issue. Um, back then, it was a matter of where the police would pick up our people. And by the time they would get released out of jail or dumped back into the community somewhere, they would be all beat up. And so the the AIM community started AIM Patrol and started bearing witness to the police interactions. And so they could they could provide testimony and witness that that person was not beat up when they were taken into custody. So in the case when they were released, if they had to, should be in about the same shape. And the patrol has kind of surfaced throughout the movement off and on over over the years, but AIM has, uh, you know, really stood for rights of Indigenous people, you know, and equity issues and uh, looking for justice, you know, for our people. So looking at treaty rights, looking at women's rights, looking at, you know, equity in housing, health care, um, education systems, AIM started survival schools that extended across the United States and Canada as well. AIM also had the founding of the International Indian Treaty Council, who um, today provides, is a NGO within the United Nations and provides testimony and presents to, you know, the United Nations through the Human Rights Council. So, you know, and actions that people might know of the American Indian Movement include you know, the of course, we think of the Wounded Knee Uprising in 1973, you know, again, standing for rights of indigenous people, standing for treaty rights and protecting land, but also the caravan we traveled. I didn't get to caravan. I was too little, but my mom participated. She was there since the beginning. And so that's how I was raised in name. But the caravan to... Uh, Plymouth Rock to talk about the first, you know, uncovering the true history of Thanksgiving. You know, my mom said she calls it Thanksgiving. And then uh, also the occupation of the BIA building in Washington, D.C., again, calling for equity and justice within that system for our people that was built to designed to represent and protect their people. Longest walk in 1978 to um, oppose the 11 pieces of um, legislation that were designed to abrogate our, our uh, treaty rights. So that's just a few things of the American Indian Movement. So, you know, Lisa, um, I remember back in a Back when AIM first started, I was uh, in junior high school and um, and hanging out on the Ave. And, uh, you know, I remember stories of, uh, of uh, having reports that the police, not only, not only were our people being abused after being picked up, but there, I remember there being reports that uh, sometimes they would pick them up and wouldn't even put them in the car, would, would, would transport them in the trunk of the police car. So, you know, there were, there were abuses happening 
um, quite a bit to uh, American Indians and how they were being treated by by um, police, uh, Minneapolis police and back in that day. And I remember the AIM patrols. And, and, and in 1969, um, I was, you know, uh, part, of, part of the youth of uh, AIM and actually was able to attend a couple of uh, events where they, uh, they took us to, um, I think the first one I went to was in Wisconsin. Uh, we traveled to Madison, Wisconsin, um, please don't ask me what it was for. My memory no longer functions <laughs> that well. Um, but then I made another trip um, with AIM and with Clyde and 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 Dennis and 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 many of the and, uh, uh, all the other adults that were with uh, AIM at that time. And and we went to a Devil's Lake, North Dakota. Now, um, what I do remember about that particular trip. When we left Devil's Lake, North Dakota, as soon as we crossed the Minnesota border, we were pulled over by the FBI. And um, um, and the the FBI? FBI That's correct. The Federal Bureau of of Investigation, who has always been, um, I think, a thorn in the side of of AIM and other kind of groups, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, groups that arose during that time. But yeah, we were pulled, uh, the FBI pulled over our bus and um, held us up for about an hour. And then, and then uh, we were able to get back on the bus and, and, uh, and, and come home. So, so what, what um, was the, what was the holdup? Like, why did they pull you guys over or, or stop you? You know, I was 15 years old. I wasn't mm-hmm. in the know. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I wasn't, I wasn't organizing anything. I was along. And all I know is that the FBI pulled us over. I never did find out why. Hmm. Um, I didn't ask. And um, but I'm just sharing, you know, I'm mm-hmm. just sharing my recollections yeah. of my involvement with AIM when I was young because AIM was significant for for me at that time because it was the first organization that began to instill a sense of pride in who we were as uh, Native Americans. Uh, you know, to me, that's what AIM, that while they were doing all those other things, they were instilling a sense of pride in us because it was the first time we were hearing Indian folks speaking positively about Indian folks. There's two things there. One is that how AIM really promoted and um, encouraged youth to attend and, you know, like that was one of the things Clyde did was he always made sure that he brought youth along with him at different events and activities. And I remember going to, you know, the Milwaukee Peltier trial. And that was where I first met Leonard Crowdog. And I remember going to Greengrass to the where the sacred buffalo calf pipe is. You know, that's where some of the AIM people used to Sundance at. But. You know, Clyde always made sure that, you know, there was youth representation. And um, the other thing, you know, here in Minneapolis, were you part of TANS, Donald? Um, My God, Lisa, you're one of the few folks who who actually knew TANS. Yeah, you know, I was, I was at Minneapolis North in 1969, 1970, and... 
and Minneapolis Indian Edu- or Minneapolis Education hired one of the first um, Indian um, liaisons, uh, and they hired a Brad Black or Barry Blackhawk. And um, so he he was our Native American advisor at North, and that was the year that we started the group True American Native Students, TANS. Um, he allowed us to come up with that name ourselves. And um, so, yes, I was a part of TANS in my sophomore year at Minneapolis North. So in that, what I see happened and what happened throughout AIM was that not only was there AIM, but AIM sparked a lot of, like you said, it, it raised a lot of pride amongst our people across the nation. And there was a um, an elder, Philip Deer, who is one of our spiritual leaders, and I believe it was Philip that talked about the vision that he had had about how coming or there was a prophecy that they would, there would be coming of this group with these red hats that would come and they would lift our people up. And then if you think about how AIM always the AIM were those red berets all the time, you know, and how it was AIM that, that really sparked that, you know, the concept of Native pride again, you know, and long hair, growing our hair long. I remember when Red Schoolhouse used to post uh, flyers or put up little signs about Ojibwe ceremonies and people would, you know, comment on that or you know have something to say be like oh you're not supposed to put post anything like that and then Clyde would follow and do the Sundance posters and you know the response to that was the elders said the you know that we're supposed to share this information with our people this is this belongs to our people this is their inherent right to know these ceremonies this is their inherent right to know these songs and the language and the traditions so we don't have to hide anymore. You know, when when both of you speak about Indian pride and instilling an empowerment in Indigenous folks, uh, I can't help but to think about when I visited the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee, about five years ago and saw uh, that Dr. King worked and collaborated with AIM based on what the exhibits were, uh, you know, were showing there. And just thinking about how AIM has had this, this incredible national movement, if you are in the know, so to speak, right? Because not a lot of folks are familiar with AIM. So I'm so glad, Lisa, that you are here really uh, as the executive director, um, giving us not only the historical um, framework of it, but also just what what you're engaged in now and the importance that has had through the decades, um, not only within the indigenous community, but more broadly in the civil rights movement as well. Uh, can you speak to some of that in terms of civil rights movement and the work that was done with Dr. King? Right. We have always had um, we have built alliances with um, not only civil rights leaders, but, you know, like we're talking, you know, Brown Berets. For our listeners who may not be familiar with who the Brown Berets are, can you give us some context there? So Brown Berets are the Latino yep. Mexica counterpart of AIM, representing their own struggles, which, of course, parallel ours. and. I remember 
and you know, like what was interesting, what what I think tied a lot of us together, or you know, one of those common threads. You know, it wasn't uh, holding hands and singing songs together. It was we shared stories on the tactics of the COINTELPRO. And in fact, one of the things I did as a young aimster is I flew out to Washington, D.C. to attend the hearings. It was the Citizens Review Commission on the FBI. We heard testimony from, you know, the Black Panthers, from the All People's Revolutionary Party, from New Republic of Africa. You know, they shared all the the tales of the counterintelligence stuff, the wiretapping, the raids on homes, the, you know, getting followed, the infiltration and and, um, undercovers that were planted throughout all the movements. And it was really interesting to see that we all kind of shared those same stories. I remember my house in St. Paul was like the go-to place during the Wounded Knee Trials. And I think that was 75 or 76. We had to keep our curtains closed because, you know, those big spotlights, their cars had those spotlights right on them and they would drive by the side of our house and shine those lights in our windows. Um, I would have a big sedan follow me to and from school every day. Um, I remember one day waking up and I was sick, so I stayed home from school. And, you know, I knew that during the day, during lunch break, the people from the trial would come to our house and they'd re- regroup, strategize, eat, rest, do laundry, whatever they need to do if there was a recess, and then go back to the trials. Well, and so I opened my door and I had stayed home because I was sick and I was like yelling, Mom, are you here? You know, hello. Well, all of a sudden I hear the door slam and I hear a car squealing out. And I was like, well, that's odd. And so I went downstairs and looked and our house had been ransacked. I mean, like, oh, my God, you know, what you see on TV is nothing to what they do in in real life. So, um, you know, so today I have a thing about curtains, (laughs) keeping my windows (laughs) covered. And I never put it together until I shared this story with some high school students, you know, like 15 years ago. We asked you, our listeners, to send in some reflections on Clyde's legacy. Follow us on Facebook to see how and when we ask for your calls. Senator Mary Kunish Imakiyapi. I'm Minnesota Senator Mary Kunish, living in New Brighton, Minnesota. Malakota, a descendant of a long line of the Standing Rock people. In these past few years, I've been honored to know Clyde Bellacord and support and collaborate with him in battling the use of Indian nicknames by sports teams as mascots. It's just one of those issues in Clyde's long campaign for Native rights, and I'll continue to honor the work that he began right here in Minnesota. I grew up knowing about Clyde Bellacourt from my parents and the public attention that he brought as a civil rights leader and his work in the American Indian movement. His fight for tribal sovereignty inspires me every day at our state capitol as we continue to fight for public safety and culturally centered education, better housing and opportunities for American Indians in Minnesota and abroad, 
His legacy was most evident during the recent unrest in South Minneapolis when our AIM members joined together to patrol and protect people and buildings from harm. Clyde Bellacourt's legacy will continue in the community he advocated for here in Minnesota and probably worldwide. In the work that he's done, the stories he's told, and the good change Clyde left to us as he moves on, I can only believe that he wishes the best for those who remain behind. So it's up to us, all of us left here on Uchimaka, Mother Earth, to live our lives in the fullest and best way, making positive change for the next seven generations. And when we do that, we pay the greatest tribute to the life Clyde lived and the legacy he leaves us. Wopala Tonka, Clyde Bellacourt. Lisa, um, I'm going to show my ignorance here, but you've mentioned your mother a couple times. Was your mother Pat? Pat Ballinger. Pat Ballinger. So your mother was part of the original founding members of Maine, of AIM. Yes, she was. And she was, she um, was more in the St. Paul. All those early meetings. Yep. Yep. She sure was. You know, she was part of the original. United Nations delegation to Geneva. She was part of, she remained on the Treaty Council board. And so that is why, you know, that's how I grew up with AIM. My mom was right right there. I remember reading an FBI document. They had released some files and somebody posted it or sent me a copy of one of the pages. And they talked about Bellinger. Then they talked about Bellinger's kids and they didn't think that Bellinger's oh kids were. Yeah, we don't. I don't think we have to worry about them. You know, they're not involved at this point. Oh. Wow! <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's what we. That's what we want you guys to think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys go think that. It's so important what you're saying, Lisa. As we bring in the context of Don's statement at the top of our segment about being followed by the FBI, the FBI just doesn't appear out of nowhere, right? We know that they're not driving down the road the way your local city police or sheriff's office would be. Right. They happen they, to be in Minnesota between Devil's Lake and Minneapolis. Right. They just it, it, yeah. it clearly was a surveillance um, situation. And, you know, it just corroborates what the two of you are saying about how the FBI was involved. And if we tie, we connect the dots, we know that Dr. King was heavily under surveillance by the FBI as well, you know, during his time as a leader. And we think about how the FBI was trying to infiltrate these different movements uh, so that they wouldn't, these movements wouldn't have any traction as they go ahead. It's been so interesting. Uh, and it was my question that I wanted to ask was like, you know, how you guys felt growing up during kind of the height of all this, did you guys, I mean, I'm sure you knew at the time, but did you like have that knowledge and understanding and awareness that you guys were part of history? You were young, young people being a part of history. I don't know if I would say that I understood that I was a part of history in that context. I knew that my history was different and my participation in life was very different than my girlfriend who lived down the block. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
she was just going to school and she was part of the cheerleaders or, you know, whatever groups at school and, you know, live that normal teenage life. And I was on my way to Canada. I was on my way to Wisconsin. I was going to different events. I was going to Sundances. I was going to ceremonies. I was going to meetings. And no, I did not know where this road was going to take me back then, but I was totally in and enjoying the life. I was enjoying the ceremony that happened all the time. I was enjoying the learning and the opportunity to meet the elders. Like at Heart of the Earth, we would have elders would come from out of town and they would say, can you come over to the school and talk to the students? So we would have assembly at the spur of the moment. We would have an assembly and there would be an elder. To me, it was normal. You know, Susie, she lived the same life as I did. Clyde's daughter. You know, we all went to Heart of the Earth, um, played basketball for the school. We went to tournaments. We went to survival school conferences. We went to AIM conferences. We went to treaty conferences. So, but not knowing, you know, really that, like taking pictures, thinking this is, I'm going to use this in the future, you know, in one of my lessons, <laughs> you know, we were just living the so life. And I think Lisa, you know, I, um, again, you know, you're so immersed with this, but like, I know I heard you mention you, you, you attended heart of the earth and, and I think it would be um, informative if you would inform our audience what heart of the earth was. I know that heart of the earth was um, a result of AIM, um, a result of your Uncle Clyde, uh, Russell, and Vern, and all those guys back then. And, um, and there were uh, the creation of these, of these schools that were directed toward Native Americans kids. And Heart of the Earth was one that was created in Minneapolis, and I think Little Red Schoolhouse was created in St. Paul. And uh, those were direct... I think direct um, impacts of of the efforts of AIM. Is that correct, Lisa? Exactly. You know, AIM started the survival schools when a family was the Roy family. You know, the the parents pulled their children out of school. Um, their kids were getting bullied. They were getting in fights. The curriculum was, you know, still saying savages and heathens. Mm. And so the parents said no, you know, and there was, there was truancy issues. Um, a lot of our kids at the beginning of the school year in Anishinaabe territory here, our children, our families go up north and they, they harvest wild rice and it coincides with the beginning of the school year, which means our kids are usually up north at the beginning of the school year. And so truancy would kick in and, and they weren't recognizing the cultural um, practice of ricing. They started with the AIM survival school and eventually changed it to Heart of the Earth. And Red Schoolhouse following, you know, like months later, you know, just bam, 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 these schools. If we wanted to educate our kids and our children to be educated properly with culturally appropriate materials, we had to do it ourselves. You go to a National Indian Education Conference, and they're still talking about things that we have been there, done that, you know, with our survival schools. You know, Uncle Clyde, you talk about statistics that he used to spit out, and, you know, he could, he always talked about how Heart of the Earth graduated more American Indian children per year than the entire Minneapolis school district. 
mm. for the same year. You know, why? Wow. You know? Wow. <laughs> so amazing. You know, again, leading the way. And then as a youth, you know, and we were learning about sovereignty and treaties and treaty rights. You know, we were understanding those concepts. One of the other things that, that came to mind as I was reading about your uncle Clyde Belcourt's legacy and and I I didn't know him personally um, by name, you know, in terms of relationship, but I was in communion with him many times over, over the course of my career, as I was with your mom, actually, uh, 30 years ago. Um, but what struck me is, and I didn't know this, that he helped create the National Coalition on Racism in Sports and the Media, which, of course, we know um, has put pressure on professional, amateur, and school teams to abandon uh, nicknames such as the Redskins, Indians, and Braves, uh, and that finally, you know, in recent years, the Washington Redskins of the NFL and the Major League Baseball's Cleveland Indians have dropped those old names. Can you speak to some of that in terms of what you witnessed and what you were part of? And I know in terms of the Counter Stories crew, we we have attended, we did attend some of those demonstrations in the back in the past. I think I want to add on to that even. Go for it. Yeah, I, I've been to a lot of events where Clyde was speaking, um, including the Not Your Mascot event. Uh, when Bernie right. Sanders came to town, I was at that event where Clyde was speaking and he, everyone was trying to rush him, you know? I was like, okay. And he was like, no, 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 no. You don't rush me. I need to give you the background so you understand the question. And like the whole room was like, don't rush Clyde, you know? I mean, he was, he really was fighting until the very end. Um, and I think part of that is like, we learned about AIM. We didn't learn about AIM in school. We le I learned about AIM through uh, community mentors, right? But um, a lot of the context that we do hear about AIM is like, oh, yeah, it was created, you know, back in the 60s. and was really active in the 70s, but we don't really hear how it's active now. And so I I'd like to hear, I mean, Clyde was fighting till the very end. Lisa, you're you're keeping it going. What What is happening now that that we need to be aware of? The history on that is that it actually started with my son and we had done some protesting previously with, you know, like the year prior against the Walt Disney on ice and the Peter Pan, where they were skating around and they were going, Woo! and so we, <sighs> yeah, we protested that. And so then by the time the next year, you know, we're watching the playoffs or we're watching, yeah, the different playoffs and us watching baseball with my son and he was nine years old and, we're watching the tomahawk, the tomahawk chop and the war hooping Ugh. of the Braves. And mm, my ugh. son was like, Mom, you know, they're doing that again. How come they're making fun of us? And I said, I know, son. Well, you know, they're over there. We, you know, <laughs> you know Mom, we shouldn't let them do that. How, how come nobody stops them? Well, fast forward to Frank Perro, who's our current board chair. He, him and Don's wedding dinner. The guys, Clyde, Ted Means, Bill Means, Vernon Belcourt, um, we were all there at the dinner and 
they're all talking baseball and oh yeah what about if the you know the the twins they win they come here then who are they going to play and oh it might be the Braves and yeah when the Braves come here and I said uncle you know what uh Jakey said about you'll kill me for saying Jakey <laughs> you know what <laughs> what Jake said about the about the game and he said what my girl what did he say and I said he said, how come we're letting them make fun of us like that? Aren't we going to do something about it? Aren't we going to stop them? And the guys kind of all stopped talking and looked at me, and Vernon dropped his fork. And they said, you know what? He's right. And when our children ask us to do something, when they ask of us, we have to answer. He said, my girl, mm-hmm. you organize that, and we'll do whatever we need to do. You know, we'll we'll support you and get it going. We organized that first big giant protest march from the Peacemaker Center AIM office over on 24th and uh, Cedar. And we marched downtown to, back then it was the Metrodome in 1991. And that really kicked off and sparked the movement. And, you know, we sit back and we watch, you know, and it picked up. It it grew all over. And at the same time, Charlene Teeters was doing the same thing over in um, Illinois, the chief of Linaway. You know, we sit there and my son and I, and we look at our team changed their name. You know, like I asked my son, I said, just think, you know, you like sparked that. And he said, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but mom, it was everybody, you know, it was everybody that did it. When we have individuals like Clyde and Vernon supporting us as young people, as young mothers, when we have them to support us and to push us out there and be there to be the Goliath behind us, then, you know, a lot, you know, we get trained, we learn, but it moves a lot of mountains, you know. You know, one of the questions you, you asked, Luz, was, or Haley, was whether or not we felt we were making history. And I never felt like we were, ma- I was making history. I f- always felt like I was riding the wave hmm. that Clyde and Vernon and Russell and, and, and Pat and all the rest of them. I mean, there are so many individuals that were involved back then. Even even another person, uh, 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 Dr. John Redhorse, who eventually went and taught social work up at University of Minnesota Duluth, um, and many others, I felt like I was riding the wave that they created. Mm-hmm. And so it was through their efforts that led to the hiring of, of uh, Barry Blackhawk at Minneapolis North, and then that led to him teaching us about who we were as American Indian students. So I was right at that cusp where prior to that, I had we had learned nothing about who we were as Indians. All we knew is that when John Wayne pulled his gun and shot one time, six of us would fall off our horse. Mm. On so TV. side note it, on how, how important it is to have teachers who reflect what the students look like, right? Exactly. And and so I never felt like I was making any history, but I definitely was benefiting from the efforts of 
the American Indian Movement, Clyde Bellacourt, Vernon Bellacourt, Russell Means, and all the rest of them, and all the women that were involved. It was through their efforts that create, that made that possible, and then I benefited from it. Mm. So I always felt like I just came along right at the right time Mm -hmm. and was able to benefit from that because then I eventually was able to go attend college on an American Indian scholarship at McAllister. And again, I believe that was a direct result of the of the um, everything that AIM had been doing to bring attention to who we were as American Indians. And um, so I always felt like I wasn't making any history. I was just riding the wave <laughs> and uh, the wave that they created. You know, and in in our community, you know, I remember my mom. The only the only thing my mom actually said about AIM, and she may have said other things, but she just never said it to me. But you know, what she did tell me is that she went to school with Vernon and Russell and them. They they were all in the same boarding school together, and I believe it was at Flandreau. It was either Pipestone or Flandreau that uh, they were in boarding school together. And so, in our communities, we have these interrelated interrelated connections mm-hmm. you really have to dig deep and uh because you might be related to somebody don i'm so glad that you mentioned in your comments here the the different women that were involved in the aim movement um and of course we have lisa who can speak to that and has spoken a little bit about that but lisa do you want to expand a little bit more because too often that's that's not always highlighted in, in these civil rights type of movements. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? There was a lot of women leadership within AIM. You had your Pat Bellingers, you had your um, Mary Jane Wilson, you had your Madonna Thunderhawk and Lorelai Means and you had these amazing women um, across, the, across Indian country they were not afraid to speak. They were not afraid to speak out or to step up and um, handle whatever that might transpire. But the media always went for the Clydes and the Dennises. Eventually, you know, there was some different branches of AIM that broke off or organizations that grew out of AIM. And one of them was the Women of All Red Nations. You know, they looked at women's issues that specifically affected women, such as you know, women's health. And then there was, of course, the Federation of Survival Schools that organized around help to organize and and support, provide support for these survival schools that had popped up across the country. You know, the International Indian Treaty Council. So some of these organizations and groups that, that kind of branched out of AIM to focus on specific work are still functioning as, you know, NGOs are nonprofits to this day. So that you know, that's that's something that I just learned. So I didn't know Women's Nation was a direct result branching off from uh, the American Indian Movement. Yep, yep. Those were all the AIM women, and they, you know, they had some some specific work. And you know, it kind of it started back in those AIM conferences that we would have, and there would be your different tracks, or you know, like how workshops branch off. Um, there you would have your women would gather to deal with uh, some of the women's issues, and 
some would want to deal with legal issues and some wanted to deal with specific treaty issues. So, um, yeah, so some of the organizations kind of, you know, formed and they served their time and, you know, they didn't last forever. And some of them are still standing strong, you know, like the International Indian Treaty Council still representing and just on hold on pause because of COVID for, you know, like treaty conference gatherings, but we are still strong in attending um, international conventions and forums via, you know, virtually and we've held virtual events and such. So good work. In understanding and reading about Clyde's legacy, and we want to definitely hear what, what uh, you um, feel is is Clyde's legacy, right? But um, I want to make sure that our listeners understand that in 2016, there, uh, Clyde Belcourt actually published an autobiography entitled Thunder Before the Storm, which was written uh, in collaboration with the journalist John Lurie. So when we think about um, how we can learn more about this giant in our society across our country and internationally, Lisa, as you say, I want to make sure that folks understand that they can read his book. I've not yet read it. I just learned about it recently and and certainly will put it on my list to read. But I think that's also really important for folks to understand that um, their, his his impact on society runs deep. Uh, and wide across our nation and international uh, audiences as well. We asked you, our listeners, to send in some reflections on Clyde's legacy. Follow us on Facebook to see how and when we ask for your calls. I'm Rose McGee, and I live in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Elder Clyde, he and my late husband, Bill McGee, were good friends. Because back in the day, back in the day, Clyde and his brother Vernon were quite the team. They did not, they were a little crazy. <laughs> they didn't settle for the norm. And it was how you, ha you had to do what you have to do to get things done. They formed this American Indian movement and they would often get arrested. So, all of that and coming through the Legal Rights Center and getting them out. And and my late husband was working at that time, this was before he became the executive director of the Legal Rights Center. So he and my late husband were quite close. And when my, my husband died, um, I invited Clyde to be one of the speakers at his funeral. So when I invited, I started selling those sweet potato pies years ago at, at Midtown Global Market. And he would come through, he and his wife, and um, he'd always buy a pie, he loved pie. And then when he published his book a few years back, I took him a sweet potato pie at book signing. And he always, you know, seemed very pleased to see me because it just reminded him of the relationship that he had with my husband. Great, great man, courageous man. The story I remember about him was years ago, and I'm sure that people are telling this story. Minneapolis Institute of Art had this big Christopher Columbus exhibit. He and his brother, they went right in there and poured blood on that portrait. And so we started seeing change, right? And that's what happens when things are wrong and uh, folks have stepped up against it, it. It inspires those who may not have known or have the courage 
to step in now and become a part of the movement to do it. So he definitely knew how to get people involved in the movement. I think Clyde's legacy is the image of what freedom is like when you are coming at this from your heart. Being a warrior isn't something that um, everybody is trained to do. Oftentimes becoming a warrior, as I see him as being, is what's, it's just there, is something that you are ordained to do. So passing that legacy on in ways that others can recognize what their calling is. Uh, Lisa, what, if you can share with us in closing, what do you, what comes to mind as you think about your uncle Clyde Belcourt's legacy? Uh, and then we understand that you may still be in the car, which explains the background noise. If there is someone else with you who would also like to share uh, his legacy with our listeners. So for me, the the legacy that that really drives me is his his work and his dedication towards um, language and culture and ensuring that it's there, that our children have access to it and that it will continue to flow through to the, you know, the next generations, you know, along with protecting, you know, treaty rights and protecting um, all of that, but ensuring, you know, he always wanted to ensure, you know, the love of his grandchildren, you know, leads his work, you know, around language and culture and ensuring that youth are represented and protected. And then I have here with here with me is Suzanne Smoke. Uh, my colonized name is Suzanne Smoke. I'm the director of AIM Southern Ontario. I'm here with my daughter, Ogama Gishikokwe, head woman of the Sky World. And for us, Uncle Clyde really taught us about sovereignty and really understanding that there is no border for us, that we are all here on Turtle Island. And that border crossed us. We are all Indigenous. And we can't mm -hmm. be divided by that imaginary border. And that happens in the South, too, when we think about those kids in cages. We are all Indigenous, and mm -hmm. we are part of Turtle Island. And we have a foreign settler government that's setting up these colonial boundaries and telling us uh, where we can and can't travel. And, you know, in Canada, we have a pass system. And most recently, you know, we have the horrific discoveries of Indigenous children in large holes in the ground mm -hmm. and I and I never use the word graves because that's that's the narrative that the, you know these were large graves but that implies that there was a memorial or that there was knowledge of and that's really not the case mm -hmm. and so really our, for us it's about sovereignty it's about assertion of sovereignty and it's also about land back and uncle taught us we never give another inch of land and, you know, Settler mm -hmm. Nation resides on 98% of the land base, while collectively all of us as Indigenous nations reside on less than 2%. But of that 2%, that's where they want to put the pipelines. That's where they want to poison the water. Mm -hmm. That's where they want to take, take, mm -hmm. take. And at what point do we say enough is enough? And so now we're at that point, you know, we're standing strong, not another inch, not, you know, no more resource extraction. You know, it's time to like take a seat at the table and say, this is how we as Indigenous nations are going to move forward. No settler foreign nation is going to come to my land and tell me how I'm going to live and how I'm going to raise my children. 
And so that's what he instilled in us is that there is no border for us and we will not give another inch of land and we will raise our children in the culture and the language and the ceremonies mm -hmm. and the prayers because that's who we are as Indigenous people. Wow. Wow. Powerful, powerful words. Wow. As I kind of mentioned earlier, that that AIM, Clyde Belcourt, AIM, um, what they did is they instilled a sense of pride in us as young Native American um, kids growing up in the Twin Cities in Minneapolis, they they let us know that we counted, that we had a voice, that that through all everything that was happening in this country, it was the first time that we heard Native voices saying that we are here. We were always here, and we will always be here. And that voice made it possible for us to move forward. Many of it, so in my generation, that was the legacy that Clyde, that was the legacy that AIM created for us, and it and it uh, definitely has helped me through my career. Um, I'm will be forever indebted to Clyde and to AIM. For what they did, because it made it, po it, I believe it made it possible for me to do what I've done in my life, and and um, so you know it's what they did and what they continue to do because it, exactly. you know aim is still it still exists the movement continues the issues are still there this is not something that we should just learn you know that happened in the sixties it is still happening we are still here I'm Don Eubanks. Associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've shared are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. And our special guest is Lisa Ballinger and Suzanne Smoke. And we say thank you and gigawabam and miigwech. Miigwech. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com. <laughs>